Hi, my name is Jason Barcham. I'm an associate partner with Servian New Zealand. Welcome to the Technology Whisperers, a technology and innovation podcast brought to you by Servian with your hosts Alistair Ross and Sean Muller. Join us as we demystify the latest emerging innovative technologies for businesses of all shapes and sizes, sharing our thoughts on how you can improve your current technologies, practices and processes to transform your business. Hello there and welcome along to Technology Whisperers. It is it is episode number nine already. I am your host, Alistair Ross, and with me as always, co-host, Mr. Sean G. Muller. Sean, how are you? Good, Alistair. Yeah, we're actually, we're one episode away from getting a badge. For badge? The num- yeah, we get badges for the number of episodes. We We hit episode 10, we get a badge. I'm so excited. It's, you know, working in McDonald's or something, or you get the little stars on your, your it, badge. That's right. We, we're going to get a badge to go with our name tags. So <laughs> we show up for the podcast. Yeah, yes. We one up. We one up like uh, like Super Mario. Awesome. I can't <laughs> wait. Right. Double that's digits right. all the way. Yeah, yeah. They gamify everything these days to keep people's interests, right? Well, I, I thank you in any case, listeners, for your interest in the Technology Whisperers as we've been going through lots of different topics. I hope that you have been interested in, in all of them. And of course, if you do have some feedback for us, we are always, always happy to hear that. So before I forget to say that at the end of the podcast, um, please um, please do stick around and we've got our contact details at the end of the podcast so that you can get in touch with us and let us know if you've got any thoughts. And if, of course, if you listen to last podcast, we had Cam Chapman on it and he talked um, about a, a great number of things. And I thought that that was a really, really interesting little collab that we had there. So if you would like to guest appear on this podcast, then please do send through your details. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, Today's absolutely. podcast. Yes, yes. Absolutely. So today's podcast is all about cloud native development, isn't it, Mr. Miller? Yeah, this, uh, so deep in our roots of this, this idea of demystifying technology, I hear a lot from the business side, by the way, and the technology side of this idea of cloud native development or cloud native applications, or we're cloud native, our business is cloud native. And Alistair and I were talking, you know, I think a couple of weeks back and we started bouncing this idea around that I think a lot of businesses are, they don't, they don't fundamentally understand, or they have an impression or they have an assumption about what cloud native applications or cloud native development is and isn't. And so I, I thought it would be valuable or useful for us to do an episode where we could kind of demystify what cloud native means and what it doesn't mean. And some of the some of the uh, urban myths or, or misnomers of, that get used, especially in the technology world, about what cloud native development is. Absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, I, I, mean, I think there's lots of uh, workplaces that we've been into recently, both Sean, you and I, where we've heard the same story. And that is, oh, yes, we're cloud native. We're cloud yeah. first. We're cloud ready. We're cloud this. We're cloud that. And in the saying, lots of the right sounding things, but when you scratch the surface, 
there seems to be, for whatever reason, and sometimes very valid reasons, issues with that their approach that they have. Yep. So we really wanted to make a lot of debunk a lot of myths around what cloud native actually is. And we're talking cloud native development, but also deployment. So a lot of all of the different subtopics of that. So we take into approach the development practice in this podcast today, as well as applications and infrastructure, and a little bit maybe about how we migrate from the the legacy or the technical debt that we've talked about in a previous podcast into a cloud native approach. Yeah. So maybe Sean, if you could just start us off with a bit of a definition of what, in your mind at least, cloud native development is all about. Yeah, so it's a good place to start, Alistair, because it gives us a kind of a reference language to talk about it. And, and you know, if you're on the business side and you're having a discussion with your technology teams, having at least a starting point. By the way, from the technology side, having a starting point to talk to the business makes a lot of sense. So in my mind, cloud native means that the application and the tools and the pieces that use that are used to deploy and develop those applications leverage cloud services and functions to get the most optimum usability, availability, so if you, if the choice is between, yeah, yeah, we're going to have all of our custom code on a VM that's running in the cloud, or we're going to use VM services that are maintained by the cloud provider, the second one would be cloud native. The first one would not be cloud native. And, and that kind of hits one of our first misnomers that, that you and I talked about, Alistair, was this idea that, well, we're cloud native if everything we're doing is running in the cloud. So the idea would be to go for a cloud native application would be that the, the, the application would leverage the cloud service provider services to have the most availability, to have the most supportability, to have the best security posture, and to have the best ability to increase and add features as we go forward. If you're not using cloud services, even if you're in the cloud, you're not taking advantage of the framework of being cloud native. So when we start talking about why would you want to be cloud native? So the, the second piece of this is, okay, we've got a working definition. We know we want to use cloud services before we try and build it ourselves, but why would we want to do that? What, what is the advantage to an organization to be, to have things that are cloud native? And we will come back to this idea that there are still some reasons and some things not to be cloud native. There are backend systems that it makes sense not to be cloud native, and we can talk about that. The advantage to a business in being cloud native is that there is a, a cost in time, functionality, and capability associated with maintaining and supporting and providing application capability both to the internal businesses but also to clients the example i like to use is netflix so for netflix to be 24 7 available for their streaming video service across the world in multiple different regions and multiple different languages with all of this content that's available they could have built from the ground up their own platform to be able to do it, it would have been massively expensive. They could have put all of the support teams in place to 
to build and maintain all of the infrastructure pieces, all the security pieces, all the database pieces to get everything in. Or they could decide to do go cloud native, which is what they did. They leveraged cloud services within their cloud provider and leveraged and leaned on the cloud provider to provide the infrastructure services, the upgradability of those services. So when the choice came up of, we've got a choice between build our own or leverage the service that the cloud provider already provides, <clears throat> unless there is a fundamental functional security or business reason not to use the cloud service, they use the cloud service. And to your point, Alistair, we, we hear a lot of strategy around cloud first. That is the definition of cloud first. If we have a choice between building whether wherever it is or using a cloud service, unless there is a distinct reason not to do it, and there are security reasons and there are availability reasons and data sovereignty reasons, but we choose to do the cloud service first because we want to leverage the availability, the supportability, the security controls, the everything that's around that as a cloud service, because the hyperscale cloud is going to invest in that in a in a wider manner than we are. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's I'll I'll just drill down a macro example, right? So, before I do that, it's probably probably worthwhile pointing out that most cloud providers these days, most sizable ones, so we're talking about really the big three here. We're talking about Azure by Microsoft. We're talking about GCP, that's Google Cloud Platform. And we're also talking about Amazon's AWS, Amazon Web Services. So if you look at, for example, AWS, there are a plethora of services available. Now, when they started back in what, I think it was, what, 2000 and... I think EC2 was, I think EC2 was, 2010, 2011? Something around there, yeah. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. I think actually their first service was S3. It wasn't even EC2. You, EC2 you, was You're right. Stuff. It was. It was S3. You're absolutely right. But, but anyway, uh, yeah. So they've got a plethora of, of services, right? And it started off with just these sort of two little core services. S3 is a, it's called a simple storage service. And then EC2 is the elastic compute service which is basically servers in the cloud. So if you want to be really pedantic, it's a bunch of computers that are in a data center somewhere yep. that just so happen to be hosted by Amazon. That's all there is to it. When people say the cloud and it sounds like this mystical thing, it really isn't. But what the value is that's been drilled on on top of that over the years, it's you know S3, just some storage, EC2, just some compute. It's exactly the same stuff as that you would have had in your data center back in the day. What happened after that is that these cloud providers, AWS and Azure and, and GCP, all saw that they could provide more value on top of these services and built on top of that. So the here's a macro example for you as I was as I was getting to it. A macro example is where these cloud providers have provided database services, for example. Database services, you could set yourself up in the case of AWS speak an EC2 server and install a database server on there. So that could be SQL server, it could be Postgres, could be MySQL, could be any database server you want, right? And that's cool, that's fine. It's, you have to have a team of DBAs who are qualified in that particular database technology in order to manage that database. 
we all we i mean if you're coming from a classic uh, you know you do it yourself kind of background that makes perfect sense yeah when you're dealing with things at scale though and you've got an enterprise environment dealing with you know what more than one database starts getting quite complicated you get into things like replication disaster recovery proper database management all of these things start to take a toll and oh, you need a, a team and upgrades and oh yeah absolutely yes very good point i'll come to that yeah so upgrades yeah so once you start putting all of that puzzle together there's a lot of human time and effort involved in just what i'll collectively called managing a database all right so once once the cloud platforms evolved especially i think aws were first in this in this um this process they released a thing called rds which is relational database service and all it is under the hood is basically amazon saying we're going to take that uh pressure off you off of you we'll set up an ec2 server and not a not like a normal server we will install uh postgres or oracle or sql server or whatever we'll put that on there we'll set up deduplication replication to another zone as well so that your disaster recovery is all sorted We'll also upgrade that. We'll patch it for security updates whenever it's appropriate to do so. We won't even need your permission because we'll make it flawless. We'll make it, you know, within without an outage. Really, it's very unusual to have outages, and we'll just we'll just do all of that for you. You don't even need to worry about that. You pay a little premium for that benefit, but the benefit that you get outweighs the cost that uh, that you're you're paying. It's just, so basically that's become for most people a no-brainer. Why would I have to pay an, a DBA to do all of these things when really Amazon, I can pay them to, to provide me a server and the DBA, if, if I've still got a DBA, I maybe not need all of those DBAs. Don't worry, I'm not talking about you know downsizing teams here in this podcast. That's not what we're talking about. But that DBA, that DBA can DBA. then can focus on doing their job, which is administering a database, looking after the tables, looking after the content, optimizing the performance, all that sort of stuff. They don't have to worry about looking after all of the disaster recovery, the replication, the the management, the patching, all of that stuff is just handed off to the cloud provider. So that is one of the, the the early services that came along that really started to go, it's not just about servers in somebody else's data center. That's what we were doing back here in New Zealand 10, 15 years ago, right? That's what we would do. We would hire, you know, some companies out there that I'll, I won't name to to just hold our uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. But we uh-huh. would still look after the whole shebang. We would do all of the management on it pretty much. And that with the exception of the hardware. So we were just co-locating servers. This is taking all of that away. This is managing it for us. And that's where it really comes into something else that becomes a lot more valuable to a business. Takes away a lot of risk as well. And and then just finally on that, that was the macro example there with with a database service, you know, managed database service. But this has really expanded out now to a massive amount of managed sort of services all the way up. So we've got infrastructure as a service. That was the EC2. Then we've got, you know, platform as a service. That's the managed database service. And now we've got levels of things as a service on top of that. 
So you can, there's business applications, there's blockchain, there's containerization, there's databases, as I mentioned, there's gaming, internet of things, machine learning. That's a big area for you, of course, AI as well, media servicing and streaming, robotics, satellites, serverless storage, you name it. They're all there in the cloud and you can press a button and basically get them pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's, so that's really one of the, I think the turning points for cloud services, you agree, but, John? But, oh, no, no, it, it absolutely is. Now I want to, I want to touch on something here because from the business perspective, that would sound like great. I don't need an IT department. I just push a button and I get. Here's, the, here's yeah. where cloud native development comes into it. All of these services can be interconnected to give you the out, the business outcome you want. They tend to be done in a decoupled manner so that individually they can be upgraded without impacting the other ones. But the key is, is that you have to configure them and interconnect them. So if you go into, and, and Alistair's done an exceptionally good job explaining uh, or using AWS services as an exemplar, if you go into Azure, you get the same exact thing. You get a, a, a plethora of services that Azure offers. Out of the box, they're not plugged into each other. Cloud native development is about going in and plugging those things in together to build yourself a business outcome and then taking your data specific or your secret sauce and deploying it into those cloud services plugged into the wider services that give you offerings so that you can provide services to your clients and or services to your internal business. And that's cloud native. Yeah, that's absolutely. So effectively what you're doing um, with the teams that you have or the resources that you have in, in your, you're almost redeploying in some cases, the skill sets. So if you, think typically, uh, I'll go back to the DBA example, these DBAs can change their skills to be cloud based database people. So they yep. know which if they if you think about it, they're given by the cloud provider. Now the building blocks, the cinder blocks of the, the, the technology, and now they have an, an ability to integrate that with, like, as Sean says, all of the other parts. So you take this block from here, you take that block from there, you put them together and you splice them with your special sauce. That is now the job of the DBA. So no longer is it all about that database management and, you know, the patching and all that sort of stuff, which takes ages that is gone, but now replaced with a job where you can actually optimize your service and really deliver more value through the yep. cloud by being able to integrate all of these different cloud native services. And that's actually, let's highlight that point a little bit because from the business side, what Alistair and I are talking about is not reducing your technology people footprint. What it is, it's about taking the drudgery, low hanging work and freeing those people that work in your organization that understand your business that have worked with you that understand how to get the outcomes out of it and free them up to do the smarter, more business aligned work and get better value out of it. And at the same time, you're reducing the impact to your business by reducing outages, by reducing security. Anybody that's gone through any kind of security audit or licensing audit by one of the vendors and have gotten this great big giant bill at the end that says, Hey, we need to upgrade. 150 servers, we need to upgrade 32 databases, we need to 
rebuild all of these Java applications because they're all running on a deprecated version of Java knows that trying to maintain all of that infrastructure yourself, unless you're a technology company inherently is very costly. And then you have to start making trade-offs. And if anybody that hasn't heard our technical debt podcast, I think it was number two, was it number two or number one? I'll take your word for it. No, it wasn't number one. Was was it number two? No, number one was our introduction. I think number two was security and then maybe number three was tech debt. No, no, no. Security was three. So I think it was two. It must be two. Okay. So if you haven't listened to our tech debt pod episode, go back and listen to it. It's it's very enlightening. You can make choices to make good technical debt choices. And this is one of those choices. You get this big bill that we've got to pay licensing, we've got to upgrade, we've got to redevelop applications all to meet security and and deprecation and supportability and so you begin to make technology trade-offs one of those trade-offs could be hey rather than us continuing to do this for the rest of our existence where every three to five years we're having to do this massively expensive we can choose to change that to an uh, opex model where we're paying on a monthly service to have aws do it or to have gcp do it for those technologies that they have built nice services for them, that we have a web interface to consume them, and we can configure them and plug them into our secret sauce and get the outcomes we want. And that really is the choice for cloud native development. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree. I mean, it's worth noting, I think that when cloud started coming along or in, into the, in the proper public psyche, I think that was probably about 10 years ago plus now. I think. It was fair to say there was a lot of FUD uh, at the time that people that were, I mean, there was a lot of FUD full stop about cloud, both pro cloud and also negative cloud, you know, people saying bad things about the cloud, probably a lot of it brought by the, you know, the on-prem or the, 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 the co-location service providers here in New Zealand yeah. at the time. But regardless, one of the pro things, I guess, was that the cloud will save you money. And I think that that is, that uh, needs to be dispelled because it's still, it's still, I hear it every now and again, I still hear, oh yeah, but I'm going to save money with the cloud. And I, the answer is no, not necessarily. You might, you might be lucky, but it all, and this is probably a podcast of its own and it's about financial operations and, um, and financial modeling of cloud services. Total cost of ownership. Yeah. So what you have to do is you have to look and be and be very honest with what your TCO is right now. If you're doing things on-prem, you're not doing anything in cloud, or maybe you're hybrid cloud at the moment, or you know a number of different scenarios, right? So take that total cost of ownership. So that's staff costs, that's licensing costs, that's you know power costs, you know the operational costs, the networking costs, you know upgrade uh, upgrade and replacement costs. Yep. Hardware costs, yeah, everything, yeah. all of that. You really, really have to concentrate on what all those costs are because a lot of them, I bet, it's very easy to overlook them because you have FTEs in your organization that kind of might mask all of that work. That's but right. then you have to translate that over into cloud, right? So you need to understand both the costs of what your current state is and what your target state is. And don't just say, oh, well, because I can buy one of those things in the cloud, OPEX-wise, that's going to cost me X per month, and that's my predicted cost. There is a lot of 
cases where bill shock comes in after a month or two or three or ten in the cloud when when realizing that there are different things so let, let, let's touch in, yeah. on this one because I, I i do actually because i by the way alistair i completely agree with you i remember in the 2000 teens having those discussions where and i and i had i heard chief architects at the time and enterprise architects at the time saying oh yeah move to the cloud is like when we virtualized so virtualizing in the early 2000s was all about cost savings we had we had 20 servers we could virtualize that down and run it on two servers so we got rid of 18 servers that's a cost savings and so what they said was yeah, yeah the move to the cloud is is like virtualization it's going to be a cost savings that's not correct, but there is a nuance to this that I think is worth talking about. And the nuance is when we begin talking about cloud native development, one of the major services, one of the differentiators between cloud and what, what I would typically consider to be managed co-location is that the cloud providers have built this interface that is easy to operate in and programmable in a way that you can get value out of it. What I mean by that is, you can decide to turn services off when no one is using them and programmatically you can make it so that when somebody reaches out to use a service it turns the service on provides the service to the the customer and then when they stop using it it turns it back off when yeah. done that, yeah when done that way you can save money this is the inherent problem with people that say yeah, yeah we've taken all our stuff and moved it to cloud so we're now cloud native if their applications have been designed to run 24 7 on premise so that the applications and that are dependent on the database that sits behind them the database can never be turned off so the application end to end cannot be turned off that's the way it's designed to turn it off you're going to crash the database and there are many applications in enterprises today that that's the case the reason, reason that's not cloud native is because they're not decoupled and using the cloud services, you can't get the cost savings associated with turning yeah. the bits and pieces on and off when you need to. Yeah. So, so cloud is very much a consumption on usage, you know, on demand kind of model where, yeah. you know, cloud native, that is just to be clear. Whereas, you know, the old school way of thing is an always on kind of model. Right. But and then and then this is starting to get into the real details of what cloud native is. if we take it to the next stage. So I've talked about about platform as a service with that managed database macro example, but then into the next sort of phase of cloud native things like API services and, you know, AWS has one. I'm going to AWS. Sorry, with my, my fallback of AWS knowledge, but you know, Servian does both GCP, AWS, and Azure, by the way. That had to do a little plug there. But anyway, I, you know, with it with things like Lambda, for example, that's a programming interface which is event driven. So for example, you only get charged, and of course, Azure and also GCP have their equivalent of this thing. But basically, all that is is a very small microcode type service that accepts an input and delivers an output. So that that the input could be an event which is triggered from somebody going on a website, for example, yeah. right? And, and is quite typical. Or clicking a link. Clicking yeah. a link, anything, anything, really anything you can think of. So you, so this user 
goes on to our website, clicks this link, and then that triggers this, in this case, a Lambda function, right? Small yep. micro piece of code that then goes off and does something else. And it might look up some sort of NoSQL database or something else. It'll do something in the back end and then return a result, okay? The good thing about these microservices is that they are triggered only when requested. So they're only used on demand. And that's very important because when you see that, the, the, the whole cloud system starts to become clearer. It yep. means that when that button is pressed by the user, when the value is needed by the user, then you're charged for that service. You are not charged 24 by seven for that service. You're charged on the consumption of that service. It's a really important point about modern cloud native services. A lot of them now are becoming microservices for this reason. And in fact, with the likes of Lambda, you get, two, I think it's 2 million function yeah. calls for free. So they've got a free tier that you can make these calls and utilize the service for, for that amount of calls. So in some cases, if it's a really lightweight service that you, you know your customers are maybe only making 100,000 calls per day or maybe even less, then you'd never you'd never get charged for it. But, but that's just an example of where the cloud native is really going into the next level of um, consumption services. It's all about the consumption on-demand services rather than having these monolithic servers that are always on in the cloud. Yeah. So, so that's, so from a business perspective, when you start having discussions about being cloud native and the advantages of it with the technology departments, and you start asking questions and the, and the answers coming back are, well, you, we're all on cloud, but we manage our own databases running on our own compute instances on the virtual machines in cloud. Those are red flags. So the, the follow-up question is, could we use the cloud provided database services? Is, is there a reason why we're not using the cloud database services and getting advantage out of that? And oftentimes the response is, and this is going to come to the migration discussion that we're going to have. Oftentimes the response is we can't move our databases onto the cloud managed ones because our version of database is too old or the applications that were built to query it are coupled too tightly for us to be able to migrate it over. And so what's happened is, is the choice to migrate to the cloud has been to do a lift and shift or let's turn off the virtual machines on premise and, and basically copy them up to the cloud and turn them on in the cloud. And we can say we're cloud native. There are many ways to approach that migration. One of the ways is that you can redevelop your applications and databases on the cloud. And then when you're ready, cut the services over to the cloud. Oftentimes to Alistair's point, there's a sticker shock associated with that. But the reality is, is that you're not comparing to apples to apples. If you actually look at the total cost of ownership for running those applications on premise and you're honest about those costs, suddenly the cost to redevelop something and place it on the cloud is not a tenfold more expensive than maintaining what you have currently. And in fact, the risk associated with it and the cost associated with the risks of maintaining on premise actually becomes fairly expensive and can oftentimes be more expensive. But if you've already moved into cloud 
and you're running your own databases and you have tightly coupled applications and you're not taking advantage of the cloud services to be able to do that. The secondary option is to do that lift and shift and then redevelop once you're in the cloud and leverage those cloud services. And there, there are entire YouTube channels about you know, migrate, migrating to the cloud, best practices, architectures to follow, project plans that you can follow. Most of the hypercloud scalers, so GCP, Azure, AWS, at some point, Alistair, we're going to have to do an Alibaba cloud episode just to talk about Alibaba cloud. Most of them have frameworks that help you do that. And by the way, there are automated tools out there like Cloudera and a couple of others that will take a look at your, your on-premise technology and help you figure out how what, what makes sense to migrate to the, the cloud and how to do that. But thinking about it from the business side and thinking about this idea of we want to be cloud first, we want to do cloud native development. You need to be asking the question of the technology, what is your roadmap to get us to be using cloud services instead of having to build and maintain it? Not because I want to get rid of technology people, but because I want to free them up to do the more smarter, better things for our business and get them to stop doing all that low hanging, oh, we're doing you know, the latest database upgrade, which by the way, might take three months. Okay, so I was just trying to find my, my documentation there about the different types. I wrote some paper a while back about the different types of cloud migration, but I, I haven't, <laughs> haven't found it in time. So, so basically I think I categorized it as there's um, about seven different types of styles of migration approach that you can make. And of course, one of them, just one of them is the lift and shift approach. And so really what is important to do is looking at your work workloads right now is to categorize what the target, the end point that you would like it to be, what, what the, the, the end goal is really think about that and then think about work back from that and see what the appropriate um, way to migrate your services. And sometimes of course, lift and shift is the appropriate answer. Sometimes it's lift, twiddle and shift, lift, twiddle and migrate. And then there's also just, you know, the, the point of let's just drop what we're doing right now and start a brand new cloud native service, switch off the old one. There might be a migration of data that needs to be done as well. So think about the data types. So you might be going, um, you know, to, to make it simple, you might have one type of database right now, which is a, you know, IBM DB2 database. And obviously that doesn't completely just drop in with a SQL or a, or a Postgres database, which is managed in the cloud. So you would need to then twiddle the, the details in there and, and, and move it across. So there's lots of different things to consider in order to get your database sorted. But there are, again, uh, a lot of the cloud providers uh, provide services now to help with that migration as well. So for example, again, just, I don't know why I keep going back to databases. I'm not even a DBA, but it's well, a good, easy to thing understand. to, to understand, yeah. right? So, yeah. so the, all the cloud providers provide something called DMS, for example, or database migration service, which basically ingests the data, which is in your database and takes it and then migrates across into. And so obviously your mileage may vary. Some of that works extremely well, especially if it's like the same type to type. So if you've got SQL server on one end and then SQL server, you know, as the managed service, 
on the on the on the cloud provider side, then often those go fairly well without much of a hitch. But then you you know your mileage can vary because you might have different versions and different types and so forth. So there's a lot of that to there's a lot of that to take into consideration. And that whole process of migration can be quite lengthy, quite time consuming, quite costly. But it doesn't always have to be when you have people around you that um, understand the target and understand the source. And that's when sometimes it is valuable to think about, you know, going outside of your team and having consultants and so forth come in as well, who are, you know, cloud experts and so forth. Bringing in an MSP or a service integrator, oftentimes for the project around migrating, whether it be a redevelopment or a lift and shift or a, Generally, the smart way to do it is a hybrid of those two, right? We redevelop what makes sense. We lift and shift what makes sense. But you're right, because most organizations, I liken this to, in your lifetime, you may buy seven houses, right? So you're not an expert in buying houses. A business is not going to have the internal capability to do these massive cloud migrations, because they're probably going to do it maybe once, maybe twice, in the life of the business. Bringing in a service integrator or an MSP that has, or consultants that have experience doing this in multiple different companies, and they know all the pitfalls, oftentimes can provide you a lot of value because you just don't have the expertise in-house to do that. Yeah, that, that, that is true. And as I said, though, it is important to have somebody as well who understands current state uh, and those people, you know, if you've got the things like the DBAs, again, going back to that database example, those are the people who are really important to have. Those will be seasoned oh, yeah. experts on the databases, on that on that platform, in-house that know their stuff. So it's those people are really key to have being involved in that migration process. So even yeah. if uh, you do go out to MSP, you know, a vendor or whatever, having that person or those people talk to that person that that provider in in that in part of that migration is pivotal uh, to the success so watch out for your migration provider ask them that question when you're you know you're going out to vet to tender or whatever for a migration ask them that question you know what would you be doing with our team uh, of of people when when you go to make that migration and if they don't have a good answer, if they don't say, oh, well, yeah, well, we'll be interviewing your people, understanding their capabilities, understanding what roles they play and understanding what their opinions about migration would be and, and, and all of the sort of the technical, the technical stuff, which is underlying, which probably only they know in their head, right? They might document it if they're really good, but a lot of the time it's just sitting in somebody's head somewhere. If they're not saying things like that, that to me rings alarm bells. So you, you yeah. do need to choose your, your vendor carefully because some, some you know, not all of them are as, as good as. Yeah. yeah, no, no, I completely agree. I, it, 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 you should be questioning whether or not that they can, that the project can be successful if they're not willing to, because both the current state and the end state, your internal technology people will have an ideal of, you know, what it looks like today and to be able to support the business, what they need to be looking like when you get to finally in the cloud. What you're bringing in the expertise to is help you get between those two, because that's not yeah. something that you, you do very often. Yeah, so it's also it's also really important as well that that vendor brings the team or the individual along for the ride and helps educate 
to what the end state will be and then how to operate that end state, especially if you're not going to be relying on that MSP going forward. It's yep. really important that there's that MSP are, are not going to hold that hold you to ransom over the platform that they're putting in for you and can have it as IP, right? The, so the last thing that I want to talk about is how, how do you know what good enough looks like? Mm. So from a business perspective, if, if, you know, if we've gone cloud native, what is it that the things that, that you should be asking your technology department, and by the way, the technology department, these are the things you need to be highlighting. If you're, if you're telling the story about how you've successfully done your cloud migration and you're now cloud native, these are the things that you need to be highlighting. The questions from the business are, how quickly can we pivot and change when our customer or client needs change? So if the business needs a different viewpoint or a different, or a different feature within an application, how quickly can we respond? Can the development teams can re respond to that? Can they do it very quickly or is it a nine to 12 month project because we have a lot of proprietary databases that are running in the cloud, proprietary monolithic application builds, again, running in the cloud, that can't pivot and take advantage of the services, many of which have to do with application development within the cloud, to be able to rapidly give you better outcomes. Can, can we turn stuff off when we don't need it? Is there going to be a negative impact? Can, can we turn off whole layers and get cost savings because we're, we know we're about to go into a, you know, a four day weekend where nobody's going to be accessing our services. Can we turn them off? Can we programmatically turn them off in such a way that they turn themselves back on if somebody needs them within a short enough period of time that the, that person can get good service. So one of the things we look at in containerization is, is that we might reduce the containers down to one. And then as soon as that one gets hit, we automatically spin up another one. And as soon as that reaches a certain level of fullness, we open up another one. And all of that is done automatically. If people have to be involved to do that. So if the answer from the technology team is, well, yeah, we can do that, but somebody's got to log into the system to turn up the next one. That needs to be, again, a red flag. You're yeah. not taking advantage of the services that the clouds are offering. On the technology side, you guys need to be touting this. If you have this capability, you need to be storytelling it to the business. You need to be highlighting it to the business. Hey, we can do this for you. You want to turn stuff off? We can turn it off. We can downsize it to reduce costs while still giving you the service that you need when you need it. We can add new features. We can upgrade parts of the stack to be able to support new capability. You want to add a new product to the web page? We can do that in minutes rather than days. And all of those things are driven by leveraging cloud native services to be able to give those outcomes. Yeah, I think uh, it's probably a point in time as well to point out security as well. The security of cloud-based services in general has come a long way since the beginning times of, you know, like 2010, 2008, or whatever it was that, you know, AWS first started out. And, you know, we really are in a much more mature model where the security defaults are set to higher level, more sane defaults rather than looser levels of security, yeah. which used to be the norm. However, that said, 
anybody who's spent any time with any of the cloud providers, you cannot just switch on a service and then expect it to be secure. So bear in mind that the cloud was always a permissive sort of service. You know, it's, it's always provided for web services. It's in, in AWS's name, right? Amazon Web Services. So a lot of the stuff is still geared to provide services over a public internet. And yep. often when you're doing business, you want you know certain areas of your service to be completely excluded from the internet. You do not want them on, anywhere near the public, right? You want that information closely guarded, closely away from the internet. Okay, you might have some web servers over here that provide some, you know, the front end services and all that jazz, but everything else, all of the other infrastructure, you want to make it super secure, super away. So it's very important that you consider your security model at the beginning. And I always, always, always say this because I've got a security hat on, right? I always, I'm always a security first person. You must, must, must think about the design of the, of the architecture of your cloud solution with security at the beginning. If you do it at the middle or near the end, or even after the end, if you've deployed already, and then start thinking about security, it's an elastoplast over an elastoplast. You're going to have to make decisions that will break things. And yep. then you'll have to, it, it's just a mess. Always think about it at the beginning, right? Okay, security first, and then everything will flow on from there. So a good, a good, having a good security team, if you're a larger enterprise, is always good. And they need to be brought up to speed with how to develop things in the cloud securely. Or yes. if, if you don't have that luxury, then obviously having a good security provider or a good MSP that has a strong security capability, especially in the cloud, is really, really important. And that, so this is... This is one of those interesting things where cloud native is actually a really good thing because Alistair's right. By, by default, many of the services are wide open. However, the, the cloud providers have built services and they've built configurations that are very easy to implement on those cloud services that can make them secure. A good cloud native development, a good cloud architect takes those into account as part of the fundamental foundations of what you're building in cloud. And in fact, if you're in the process of moving to the cloud now and you're just now getting your foundations in place, you should be asking, what are the security things that we're putting in place with our cloud foundations so that everything that we move in, everything that we take advantage of from a cloud native perspective is by default in the beginning using security services that are inherently built into the cloud. It, it just, it's, it is equivalent to having that database as a service and choosing to do the database yourself. If, if there's security services there that you can turn on and leverage within the cloud, they will be easier, they will be more aligned, and they will give you a better outcome for the cloud services that you're consuming than not turning them on. Yep. So, and it's, it's probably worthwhile pointing out that network security is not like the traditional network security. In, in the days of, you know, Sean and I, when we were doing our thing in, in networking, so both of us have a bit of networking background, um, Sean more than I, but basically, you know, we would be creating things like VLANs and subnets and segregating physical networks. Yep. All of that's kind of gone. It's It's been replaced with different levels and different ways of logical thinking. So, you know, for example, 
all of the networking is software defined these days. And when I say software defined, I mean, literally all of the networking in the cloud can be defined by code. And all of the services that you can define as well are defined by code. So when we start to think about that way, you know, uh, Sean mentioned a few moments ago about how, you know, you have containers, for example, holding the services that you have and you'd spin them up and spin them down as per requirement demands. Well, all of that is driven by this infrastructure as code, right? So you have a routine of, you know, a small routine. Usually these aren't long winded pieces of code. These are very small pieces of code generally that say, okay, fire up these servers uh, and then spin them down after utilization of X. And so there's, there's different platforms for writing those, but you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a short amount of different platforms. So having those platforms, it's, it's key to be thinking about security within those as well. So it's, it's about defining which way of networking, which way of securing this platform at the deployment of and instantiation of each instance at that point in the, so that you're, you're driving it secure every single time. That's where you want to build in, which is a different way of thinking from where we used to be, because we used to have a network guy over there in the corner or girl over there in the corner, they would secure the network so that we had our bastion or firewall or VLAN or hard all of shell around the outside of the company. Yep. And that way, squishy. exactly. So that way of sort of, uh, thinking is almost completely irrelevant these days. When we're dealing with cloud native, we have to have a thought of zero trust, right? So we're actually thinking that everything is a, play, a level playing field. So we don't have a network edge in the traditional sense where it's us and them. We have maybe a demilitarized zone in the middle. None of that. It's all one level playing field. So we have to think about zero trust, as little as trust as possible. And that's, that's basically the way that we're going with the security there. So just a little bit of a tidbit about security, because I would feel like I would be um, doing a disservice to not talk about it. We, so we probably need to plan, Alistair, to do another, a second security one where we go in a little bit more in depth. I'd love to go, and I believe it's on our to-do list to do a DevSecOps podcast. But it, yes, it is. How, how we bake security into the development of applications. Because Alistair's right, we're moving to a place where every application, any connection to an application is going to have to be validated and they're going to have to be governance and rules around it. And even accessing the data through the application is going to require validation and governance. And, the, and those just need to be cloud native takes advantages of the services that allow you to do that in a robust, but repeatable and uh, quick enough manner that you can you can deploy and you can flex and you can change based on what people are doing and, and interacting with you. Whereas previously for us to do that, every time we wanted to make a change like that and take all that security into account, we were spending you know 18 months on a project to be able to make it happen. Cloud native development allows you to be more agile allows you to be more responsive. Some of the companies out there are down to the point where they are doing software updates and deployments across their stack. We haven't even talked about limited blast radius deployments. The ability to say, yeah, I don't want to deploy this application to everybody. I want to deploy it to 10% of the people out there so I can test to see if it's going to work. 
And Netflix, for, uh, as per your example, they're a, they're a great um, exemplar of just doing that. They, they'll do A-B deployments. They'll do, you know, yeah. um, all sorts of little little tests and tweaks on their platform all over the place. That's right. And it can be hugely advantageous to a company to be able to be that nimble when it comes to the services that they're offering their clients and customers, while at the same time being secure and available enough. Because that's the big challenge, right? I'm going to create an application that is secure and available enough, but I need to be able to make changes on it rapid enough that I can respond to the clients. Hmm. I can remove all the security and availability and I can make changes willy nilly and we can have outages and security events, or I can put it in cloud native and yes, I can have all those controls, security and availability and everything else, but I can still deploy rapidly in an AB manner or a limited blast radius manner, test, see if it works in real life. And if it works, then use those infrastructure as code to roll it out to all the other people that are using it literally within hours across yeah. the stack. Yeah. Well, I, Alistair, this is, I, cloud native is one of those things that I could talk about for hours. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very long topic. And I think we could, we could talk about a whole bunch of things. And I think that, you know, maybe if we get some feedback on this, podcast we maybe we could do one. some more like i yeah. think a lot of cxos and so forth are worried about cloud locking i think that's yeah. one thing that we we could probably talk about as well but I, I think we've run out of time for this podcast yeah i think yeah cloud locking and what multi-cloud is and isn't i think an entire multi-cloud episode might be might make sense yeah but it, i think we've hit i think hopefully we've demystified what cloud native means to you on the business side Hopefully we've given you on the technology side, the tools to be able to describe what cloud native is to the business so that you can be successful. Um, yeah. But as always, thank you very much for listening. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you along. And, and, and yeah, as I've said, said at the beginning, it would be great to hear your feedback from you, wherever you are listening, you can get in touch with us. You can get in touch with Sean. How can, how can you get, how can people get to know what you're up to and, and get in touch with you? Oh, I'm on, I'm on all of the, all of the social medias. If you search for Sean G, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, all of the social Pinterest. media. Yeah. Pinterest. Is um, that where you put or, your recipes? <laughs> yes. I, I, I uh, really nice meat cooked out on the Barbie. Yes. Or you can reach out to me at Sean.Muller at Servian.com. Excellent. And myself, you can reach me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Alistair J Ross. Uh, you can also get me on YouTube. I've got a little YouTube channel where I just do geeky things. If you like some time out from that, that's youtube.com forward slash Lab. And finally, via email, alistair.ross at servian.com. Again, thank you for listening. We will catch you again on episode 10 of the Tech Whisperers. Looking forward to speaking to you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.